0: Whether they be singers, actors, imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. Are you looking to plan and book an upcoming Disney vacation? Contact the Tierra Talk Show's official travel agent, James from Destinations in Florida, by visiting destinationsinflorida.com backslash TR. For a free quote, the link is also included in the show notes on our website. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode and from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tiara Talk Show guest, Disney Park and Cruise Line stage director, Chase Senji, to the show. Welcome. Hi,
1: thank you. Thanks so much.
0: It's so exciting to have you on the show today because you've, wor- you've been working for the Disney Company for 15 years, fr- starting in around 1986, and you kind of um, moved away to start your own business around 2001. I first wanted to talk about how you first got involved with the Disney Company and working as a stage director on so many different projects.
1: Well, it's sort of a, it's sort of a story of a road trip, so to speak. I grew up in Southern California, very close to Disneyland. So as any kid would, you go as often as you can. And I watched Disneyland change from the late 50s, uh, you know, until the mid 70s or so. And uh, as by that point, I had committed myself to a a career in theater and wanted to become a show director, a stage director. And uh, I had gone to school at California Institute of the Arts for college, uh, which was affiliated with the Disney Studios. It was the college was originally founded with part of the estate of Walt Disney. To become a training ground for future artists to work with Disney, uh, that was the philosophy of it. Um, in practicality, um, I spent time as a uh, intern apprentice at the makeup uh, department at the studios, and uh, we worked backstage somewhat at Disneyland. And I kind of got familiar with the whole Disney thing even more so from the backstage side than the front of house side. Um, but you know, a career in live theater, you have to go to New York. So. I left Southern California, went to New York and was there for about 10 years uh, as an independent contractor director and then uh, came south here uh, right before Epcot opened uh, in 82. And that's kind of where I picked up again with Disney after my New York years. So my familiarity with them started very young.
0: And you worked on the Epcot Grand Opening, too. That must have been quite a, an exciting and uh, a nerve-wracking day because, I don't know, Grand Openings just sound very busy.
1: <laughs> well, it, you know, the Epcot Grand Opening, I had only been with the company about five or six weeks. And uh, so this was this was a huge event. And it's like the Grand Opening that never stopped. It took the entire month of October, from October 1st when uh, we did the uh, Grand Opening of Spaceship Earth and the opening of the park. Until I want to say October twenty fifth, sixth, somewhere around there, was the gala grand opening black tie night where all of World Showcase was was alive with entertainment. And we premiered the uh, the lagoon show, the nighttime fireworks and lights uh, show, which was originally called Carnival de Lumiere that entire month. I think the whole crew that did I didn't do all of these, uh, but they hired an entire crew for it, and they did 22 shows in, I want to say, 24 or 25 days. It That's was crazy. pretty amazing. Yeah, so busy? Yeah, it was busy.
0: I know they have plenty of videos uh, online. It's just fascinating to see the differences between opening day in the 80s and Kind of coming into the 90s, which is Hollywood Studios, what it was formerly known as, and I still call it this, uh, the MGM Studios, which you also yeah. did partake in the opening of that in around 1989. And my yeah. goodness, like that is, there's so many stars there Audrey Hepburn, uh, Betty White, uh, Betty Bette White Midler. My goodness, uh-huh. like what was, you must have been really starstruck. I can only imagine. <laughs>
1: It was a pretty amazing time. Again, I had I was assigned certain ones of the openings that I was working on, and uh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny you should say the Disney MGM Studios. I still have my ball cap and, and and work jacket from you know team jacket from that era that nobody recognizes anymore because they're all uh, it's all changed the logo and everything now. But oh. yeah, it was pretty amazing. I got to work with George Lucas on the opening of Star Tours and in Indiana Jones. Steven Spielberg was there. We had, uh, like you say, Bette Midler and several other major celebrities for the Great Movie Ride and the Grand Arch opening. Actually, one of the things that really was almost starstruck, I-, I would say starstruck, was uh, working with Roy Disney on the animation building and the animation dedication of the courtyard area there. Oh, I
0: forgot about that. Yes, because you had the, you had some of the nine old men also exactly. joining Roy Disney with that. Roy exactly. E. Disney, yeah.
1: Right. Roy was responsible for, he was the head of Disney Animation at that time. Um, and he had brought uh, some of the nine old men, as you mentioned, and just going into to go in and brief him on the ceremony and talking through because usually you don't get the celebrities till the very last minute. And so, uh, when you're a stage manager or show director, you go in and you brief them on, okay, this is what's happening. This is where we are, what's going on. Here's what you're going to be asked to do and sort of things like that. Now, all that's been given to their people in advance, but it usually doesn't trickle down to them specifically. So they want to hear it in person just before they're going to do it. So I walked into the animation building where they had people waiting for the ceremony, which was outside in the courtyard. And I walked in, and there's Roy Disney standing in front of me. And he looked just like Walt in his younger days. I, don't, I wouldn't call it deja vu, but it was kind of a spooky, oh, my God, it's the ghost of Walt. And he's accustomed to that. He's very gracious. He shakes your hands, and, you know, and smiles, and kind of puts you at ease. But that's the moment I was most starstruck here.
0: So when you're working with George Lucas to open the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular and Star Tours, what is that like working with someone who is so well-known?
1: He, uh, he was a wonderful guy. He's very quiet and very private. I've met him several times over the years working with Disney, uh, from that beginning with uh, the Disney and Jim Studios all the way through the opening for Disney Cruise Line, where he was invited to come and bring his family. Um, he's very quiet. He's very personal. He keeps to himself. Uh, we've had the opportunity to record and work at his Skywalker Ranch up in Northern California a couple of times, which was a real, real treat. Um, but he, uh, he, like the celebrities I spoke of, kind of is at a distance for most of any of the planning. They run it by him. He says yes or no. And then we hear back. And then he comes in like the day before or the day of, uh, the event. And you, like, like I explained with Roy, you go and you meet with him somewhere backstage. Have a little refreshment. You sit over a table or on a couch and you chit chat a little bit and talk through the show. And he's like, "Okay, what do I need to do? Uh, you know, where do I need to stand? Where, what do I need to be?" And you know, we would give him that direction. Now he had brought with him uh, performers as Chewbacca and c 3 pl and R2D2 uh, that were all part of the ceremonies as well. Uh, so we had the whole contingent there of uh, you know the star lineup.
0: I'm just so fascinated with the Studios Park during that time, because I never got to see it until around 98. And another show I never got to see, and I'm so angry I never got to see it, was The Spirit of Pocahontas, which you also worked on. Oh, yeah. Yes, and for listeners, uh, you've probably heard our interviews with uh, the cast. We have two separate interviews. I'll link them below in the show notes to check out. You definitely want to listen to them, because the cast speaks very highly of you, Chase, and had a wonderful time working on that show. And that show was was only on for maybe a year, right?
1: Yes. At the time, the, the executive theory was releasing a new animated feature, and every year they wanted a new show to go with that new feature. Um, and it started with Beauty and the Beast, and then they kind of went back and said, oh, we need something for Little Mermaid, and that's where the Little Mermaid attraction evolved from. And by that, by the time The Spirit of Pocahontas came along, uh, we were doing a new show a year for each of the features. Well, uh, Pocahontas opened and had its run, uh, and the the Hunchback film was coming next. So our show closed in order to make room for the Hunchback show rather than putting it in another location or building another theater for it. They wanted to put it in the same location, and at that time, the studio's executive management theory was we'll just keep putting them into the same theater. Every year there'll be a new show in that theater. Um, And then when Hunchback opened and was such a success, so they decided to just let Hunchback run another year. And then it was another year, and then another year. And I forget how many it finally ran.
0: Didn't the uh, Spirit of Pocahontas begin at Disneyland or Disney World? Because I know Disneyland had their own version of the show.
1: Those two shows were created simultaneously. I worked with my team here and with a team in California. And uh, the idea at the time was there's a certain amount of music that's going to be be recorded by both. Why well, do it twice? Let's do it together and then there's a certain amount of costume development and staging development that would need to be created. And within the process, their theater venue was a very different configuration than ours. Ours was a traditional amphitheater with a proscenium stage in the front, and theirs was kind of this environmental, 180-degree, stand-in-the-middle-and-watch-it-all-happen-around-you uh, experience, and uh, it, it allowed us to continue down the same path to a certain point, But then they had to stage their show and we had to stage ours. And I believe they both opened the same day. Uh, If not, they were like one day and then the next. That's how they ended up with two different shows.
0: Well, some of the cast members said that they weren't very pleased with the final film that was released. And you talked with them all and said, well, this is this is my view for the show, and they were very happy with it. So, when you saw the film and you decided to take it in a different creative direction, including with the music, what was the first aspect of dissecting the script and deciding what should stay and what should be removed?
1: Part of the reason I first got involved with the film is the trailer that they sent out uh, within the company before it ever goes to the public. Right now, those kinds of things bleed out on YouTube and stuff before beforehand. But back then, everything was extremely confidential, and we used to get. Like a, uh, not a preview of the whole film, but it was sort of a synopsis of the film with some of the completed portions, especially the musical numbers and things like that, uh, that was used as a familiarity piece so that people working within the company knew what was coming next uh, and we could all get prepared for it in whatever manner each of our departments needed to. So when you, I first saw the film and I saw this great theme of humanity, that yes, we are different And yes, we come from different places, but there's no reason that we can't put aside those differences and look at the commonality that we have as human beings. And there was something that really struck a chord in me uh, about that theme. And I said, I want to do this show. As soon as I saw that preview, I said, I want to do this show. And they were gracious enough to let me. So uh, when we were casting the show, we wanted our original goal was to have an all Native American cast. Uh, and we knew we couldn't get them all from the Pal- Palatin region of Virginia, where the story actually takes place, because there really aren't that many individuals left in that area from that tribal origin. Uh, so we went on a nationwide search for uh, people with uh, Native American uh, ancestry, or or current uh, they were currently living on a reservation or in New Mexico or something like that, and actively tried to hire an all Native American cast we were unable to secure enough people for the rotation of seven days to keep the show going all the time and subs and backups and everything else, uh, with all native American cast. So we broadened our net a little bit and we ended up, uh, working with a uh, cast members that were from other ethnic backgrounds, but they had native American in their ancestry. Uh, some of them were Filipino Indian, some were Brazilian Indian, um, things like that, a whole combination. So, As you looked at the stage, you sort of had—they were—it wasn't a homogenous look. They all looked just slightly different, which kind of lent itself to the theme of the show. Now, when you stage uh, a a musical for a park audience from a film, your job is to adapt the film, right—the story, the visuals, the characters, the music—all down to 25 to 30 minutes from an hour and a half or more film. So you have to decide, how am I going to tell the story without just taking the film script and putting it on the stage? So there has to be a, you have to develop a creative concept of way to truncate the show without losing the idea of the characters or the story and to make sure you include all of the key moments, visual moments and uh, musical moments uh, for the audience. And that's just part of the creative process of, edit, of adapting a film to the stage. To me, it's all about the story and what is the lasting impression that the audience is going to walk away with? What message have you given them so that when they walk away, it either uh, spawns a, a conversation between the children and the parents or people walk away and talk with each other about it. And this this show had some meat to it uh, because the story required it. And I think, I think the best compliment I received after the show opened was from a young lady Who came up to me after the opening and said, I forgot I was in a theme park.
0: Even watching it on a YouTube video, I'm still uh-huh. I'm still taken away from where I am and just totally immersed in that world. And and you know, speaking of musicals, let, let's go over to the Disney Cruise Line aspect of you of you working on projects for that. I loved seeing Hercules the musical because Meg was my spirit animal. I love oh, okay. her, <laughs> and I love the uh, the how different she was as a as a character. And then my goodness, Hades, like that was a total switch on what a Disney a classic Disney. Disney villain is and Hades is just uh-huh. so much fun. Did you work alongside the writer to get like a good dynamic and a good pacing going? Because these these shows on the Disney cruise line are just as long, or maybe even shorter than the ones in the parks.
1: Yes, they they're almost an hour long. Uh, the ones on the cruise line, uh, which is a tough length of format to create a musical for. It's not quite a full musical, and it's not a one act. It's its own animal in between. Um, Actually, I wrote the script along with my assistant director at the time because the direction to base a stage show on the Hercules film came almost at the last minute. We had developed uh, another show uh, for about a year and a half uh, prior to that. It took almost two and a half years from inception of shows to opening of the ships, so it was a very long process for because we were designing the facility for the stage and all of the technical tricks and aspects and surprises while we were writing the shows. And so they had to be designed and engineered into the construction of the ship at the same time. So it's kind of a lengthy process for that. But we had been creating uh, an opening night show called Let the Magic Begin, which featured a three-generation family, uh, grandparents, parents, and children, uh, who come aboard the Disney Magic. And to the spirit of what the ships were created to do, they each had their own little vacation on their own and then they come together at the finale as a family to experience the entire uh, the entirety of the ship experience, which is what the ships were intended to do. Uh, Disney Cruise Line was founded for families to be able to cruise together, vacation together, and have their own time as well, separate from each other. So the ships were originally laid out and still are, so that there are areas just for adults, areas just for kids, and areas where families can come together. And no one had done that in the cruise industry before, so we thought it was important to make that part of the reminder message of the opening night of the experience for the ship. We were in the uh, middle of the final presentation of that show, and uh, Michael changed his mind. Michael Eisner changed his mind and said he had just seen the Hercules film in LA because it hadn't been released yet to the public. He had just seen it in LA and he said, "This is going to be a major hit. Do a Hercules show." Literally, we were writing bits and gags at night. While we were rehearsing Voyage of the Ghost Ship and Disney Dreams, the other two shows, we were writing and rewriting the Hercules show because at the time he told us to do it, we hadn't seen the film yet. It hadn't been released. And we had to go into rehearsal just a couple of weeks later. And part of the conceit of the show, like you said, there weren't there are five muses in the film. Well, we had to have five in order for the vocal parts to work, but we didn't have five African-American females in the show cast repertoire because once you're aboard ship, everybody has to play a different part in each show. So we already hired the cast for Death Ship and for Disney Dreams, and now we have to retrofit the cast into uh, Muses and the characters of Hercules. How are we going to do this became part of the, the anchoring concept of the show, which is to do it like a vaudeville, do it like a vaudevillian piece where there are mistakes that happen in front of the audience, and part of the fun is that the audience is in on the gag that half the props got lost at sea and the costumes didn't make it and we don't have enough people. So people have to play multiple parts. And we and we watch people change costumes and we watch people come out in the wrong outfit and we watch all those and that becomes part of the texture of the show. It's sort of like a like a like an old variety show, like a Carol Burnett show or something like that. We had to work backwards to create it instead of forward.
0: well we'll go to the next show that you did for Disney Cruise Line which was Disney dreams it's still playing still running and a new announcement was made that they're going to update it uh, with some frozen songs so have you yeah. been approached to uh, help with this update since you yeah were one of we I,
1: I actually had an encounter with one of the uh, one of the higher executives out in California recently about about this and uh, he was our uh, assistant producer at the time with Disney Cruise Line And uh, he brought it up to me just thinking I would be amused by it. And I said, well, you know, we created the show as a modular piece that uh, the Cinderella segment, the Belle segment, the uh, Lion King segment, or the Aladdin segment could each be almost like pulling out a drawer. You could take out that piece of the show as long as it held to the initial concept of the show, which was this is all happening in the imagination of the young girl who's the lead character, It's all conjured by Peter Pan, and it all has to be part of the the riddle at the beginning of the show, and it all has to evolve out of her bedroom, because as as you remember, everything comes from a toy or an object or a thing in her bedroom. So the imagination of a child is what brings that show to life, and as long as the Frozen piece isn't just kind of dropped in out of the blue uh, with no rhyme or reason or what for, then I think it will be extremely successful. Uh, in fact, they could. I was thinking they could pull the Cinderella segment, uh, being one of the older classics, and bring in Frozen instead. But now that they're doing a live-action Cinderella, I don't know. Maybe that's the tougher choice.
0: Has there ever been any Disney film that you kind of wish that you could have made a project, a, a musical out of, and it never kind of came to fruition?
1: Actually, almost, almost the other way around. I, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, we created a show called Voyage of the Ghost Ship for uh, Disney Cruise Line. And as we were creating it, we were extremely hopeful that that show might actually be turned into an animated feature. Wow. It was an original story set in the t- same time era as Pirates of the Caribbean. Little inside story. Or that show originally was going to be a prequel to Pirates of the Caribbean The Ride. This is before the whole Johnny Depp Pirates. So, yeah, The Voyage to the Ghost Ship was an original Disney storyline musical written about uh, an enchanted ship and sea captain and princess and a. Uh, evil villain that morphs into a sea monster and ghost pirates and sirens at sea and uh, funny cabin boys. and That sounds are... like
0: my type of show. <laughs> oh,
1: it was a fun show, and it was perfect for the ship because it was performed the night after they went to the private island, and all the kids' activities were, were focused around pirates and treasure hunts and things like that. So it was the perfect show for that slot. Um, but you know, as time moves on, that show was traded out and another show was brought.
0: But I have three Disney questions I always ask my guests. I call them the Fab Three questions. So we'll start with the Donald one. So the Donald one is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites?
1: Um, I would have to say uh, the first one I saw was Cinderella. I I distinctly remember seeing that animated feature in a drive-in movie (laughs) with my family uh, growing up in California. And it was the first time I saw a a full-length animated feature musical. And it just captured me.
0: But our goofy mm-hmm. question, what Disney character yep. do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person?
1: Wow. That's a tough one. I, wow. I would have to think about that. My first reaction was going to be Roger Rabbit.
0: Oh, um, my gosh. Nobody's mentioned him before. I like that answer. And our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind?
1: Follow Your Heart, which was from Voyage of the Ghost Ship. It was a the romantic theme of that show. It's a philosophy I've believed in since I started my theatrical career.
0: Thank you so much Chase for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun to talk about the various projects that you've worked on. The best of luck with your upcoming projects. Do you have any that you'd like to plug before we head on out here?
1: Well, I don't have any I can really talk about right now, but uh but thank you. I appreciate it very much and I'll let you know if another one comes up. It, oh, yeah. we'd, uh, we'd love to have you back you. on the
0: show again and talk about it and we could share it on our page. So I think that would work love perfectly. To come
1: back. Well, thank you. Okay,